Thank you, worship team. Okay, I've been spoken to. I'm not going to move way up anymore because I'm giving people cricks in their neck and they're moving, they're moving back and a bunch of whiners. But anyway, just kidding. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to be good. So those of you who are breaking the rules and going through the ropes there, I don't know what I'm talking Mumble, mumble. One of the things, I, ha- I got to just, let me just be blunt. Can I be blunt? You know I always am. Um, two things. One is, Walt, our brother over there, I forgot to pray for you because I didn't have it written down, but Walt had an, um, a heart episode last week, was in the hospital, and uh, so glad that he's here today, and God was merciful. Amen? So we're glad that you're here, brother, so uh, can pray for his recovery as well. And when I first got here and I was an interim, in fact, the first day I walked in, there's a little story that I won't tell publicly because it wouldn't be edifying. But I came in and I noticed that people sat one there, one there, one there, one there, and wouldn't get near each other. And I was like, why do we all hate each other here? Just seemed like we don't even like being together. Now, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but I am saying it'd be good if we got to know each other a little better and weren't afraid to sit a little closer. I mean, I used to pre- I can preach without a microphone, but those of you in the very back might not be able to hear, so just want you to be encouraged. So you feel comfortable, be where you need to be. I know that there are people who come to church and uh, they're just testing the waters, trying to find out, do I really want to be here? Do I feel safe? Very interesting word in that song, this safe place. It opened with that, and I thought, wow, that's a mouthful. On a number of fronts, Am I safe when I come to church with other Christians even? And then the implications for today's sermon are, are, am I in a safe place compared to the world that we live in? But if you're searching it out and you're checking it out, I want to encourage you, uh, you just sit where you need to be, okay? And, uh, and learn and take in. And uh, if you need to pursue... Uh, the work of the Spirit in your life or healing or whatever, please talk to me, talk to someone so you can start making forward progress and uh, become more and more brave as a brother or sister in Christ, okay? Our passage today is an interesting one, and I kind of got stuck on it. It happens to me. And what happened is uh, I was getting ready to enter into some of the most important teaching in really the whole New Testament, that seems to be centered in this one section, but I couldn't get to it yet, and you'll see why in just a minute. Years ago, when I was uh, working on my, uh, my doctorate, actually, I had a really rough assignment that was given to me. I had to listen, believe it, instead of reading, because you always had to read thousands of pages, I was given the assignment that I had to listen to Garrison Keeler. Lake Wobegon, one of the most important things ever accomplished, I think, you know. It's like, this is some of my suffering for Jesus. I'll do this all day. It was great. So every time I was driving cross-country to St. Louis, I'm listening to uh, Garrison Keeler, Lake Wobegon days, spring, summer, fall. Have any of you ever heard of him? He's hysterical, right? Really great storyteller. Tender, makes you weep, makes you laugh. It's just a wonderful thing. Well, that's why I entitled us today Lake Wobegon Kids. 
Anybody remember his little catchphrase? He tells great stories about the Minnesota environment, you know, that Swedish background, churches, etc. It's got great, great humor and uh, very tender stories. But here's his, his uh, tagline. Welcome to Lake Wobegon, where all the men are strong, all the women, men are good. Well, I got it all wrong. You can read it for yourself. All the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. What are you laughing at? All the children above average. Now, I'm not going to make a commentary on how we all think our children are above average. We could park there for about an hour because probably they're not, but okay. That's not the point. The point is above average. Remember last week I made a distinction between normal and average, all right? What we experience many times in American Christianity is average, but it's not, from a biblical perspective, normal. And that's why I picked this just for the fun. I was trying to use a little humor. I can see it didn't work very well, but (laughs) you like it anyway. All right, so that the children, my brothers and sisters, the children of God should be above average. Now, not above average like we're in competition, Just not living the average experience that we have, but living what God had in mind. The normal, what I like to call the normal Christian life. A life that is impacted by the spirit, that is taught from the word, that brings joy in spite of difficulty, things like that. So that's what I'm trying to press into. And I'm about to attack a section of scripture, especially when we get to chapter 2 of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 and those first, first long paragraph talks about the life of Jesus given for us. And we're going to look at that next week when we celebrate communion. I think it's perfectly appropriate that we look at that. But actually, we're going to have to park on that for a while and marinate on the subject matter because you can't just hit it with one week. It, it just won't work. It seems like there are certain things that take quite a while and quite a lot of thinking and marinating to have it sink down and get into our shoe leather, if you will. So we want to do that. But today, I simply want to mention that the children of God should be living this normal Christian life, this being above average, if I can put it that way. And the first word we're going to look at is conduct. I'm putting that up there, and if you read it, it looks like it says polite. You, oh my. But you're reading it all wrong. It's really political. That's what you want to concentrate on. With the E in there, kind of messes it up because that's a transliteration. But really, this comment out of the passage of Scripture we heard um, read this morning, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and on and on and on. So that's the passage that we're looking at. Christians are marked by a certain kind of behavior. I'm just going to leave that up there, and I'll unpack the word in a minute. We, do, we know that. Historically, the Christian church for 2,000 years has had a posture about certain things. Ethics, for example, our sexual ethics. I've mentioned before that one of the early Romans... Uh, dignitaries who was observing the growth of the church, and remember the church was persecuted at times, 
they were impacted, they were kind of um, overwhelmed by the fact that Christians were so incredibly self-sacrificing, loving. The word charity, agape love, we say love one another, charity. They would give of themselves and they would serve the sick and they would serve others that were hurting. It was overwhelming to them so that this Roman dignitary said they share everything but their beds. Just going to let that sit there and marinate for a minute. Everything but their beds. Showing charity, becoming honest. Those were things that turned around slaves who would normally steal from their masters. They suddenly became Christians and their ethics changed. I think I mentioned um, probably last year. Billy Sunday, that, that might ring a bell for a few of us old-timers, right? He was a famous evangelist. He was quite dramatic. You think I'm, I, I act up during church? This guy was out of control. He would climb right up on the pews and start preaching at people, you know what I mean? Billy Sunday used to go to Binghamton, where I ministered for 22 years, and the local businessmen would pay to bring him. Guess Why? Because after his crusades, when people became real Christians, they would come back and pay for what they stole. Employees would give back what they had ripped their employer off. Get it? There was an impact. Christians are marked by certain behaviors. And even though in our culture today, a lot of that moral standard has slid, right? There's been a lot of slippage today, if you will. Even though we've kind of fallen apart, we still think that way. We still know what's right. Mike uh, Hopper in prayer meeting again and several different points. You, I'm picking on you. Don't look at me like that. That's my job. <laughs> yes, you do. Was, list, was um, online and or saw the, the man who lost his wife through a drunken driver, and he's expressing love and compassion not only for himself but for the family of this man who did this crazy thing. And people are writing in and responding, blogging and saying, I don't believe in religion, but if there is one, this is what it ought to look like. How is it we get that? We know that's the way Christians ought to behave. I don't know if they do this around here, but up north they had a Christian yellow pages. Remember that? Christian yellow pages. And the subline was, to be sure. Would be nice, but even if it didn't work out that well, which it didn't, let me just say, we know what it ought to be, right? We get that. Christians ought to look a certain way. All right. So here's this word, political. Looks like it's saying be political. No, that's not the point. The word literally means to live as a citizen. To live as a citizen and you know why Paul is talking this way? He's using language that the people in Philippi would totally, totally get. They're very proud of the fact that they are a Roman colony. They are one of those cities that was part of the expanded empire of Rome that was graced, if you will, with official status. When you went to Philippi, you got to see a little bit of Rome's culture. 
Ever go across? The, I haven't made it yet. I want to drive across uh, the, uh, the Canadian border up to Montreal. Because when you're there, what do you get a taste of? France, right? A little. Same idea. And so he's saying, you know, when you go to different countries, those of you who have traveled abroad, you know that it's really helpful to get prepped before you go. That there are certain things this culture does not like you to do in public. You don't want to do them. And other things they love if you do. So you want to do those. Same idea. You know what it means to be a Roman citizen. Now, demonstrate that you know that you're citizens of heaven. Demonstrate it. In fact, Paul puts it that way later in this book. For our citizenship, related word, same idea, political status, is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, conduct yourselves, live as a citizen, have your citizenship be at home, behave, conduct yourself as though you're planning on retiring somewhere else. Because you are. <laughs> Anybody? No amen. See, no one's in a hurry. That's the thing. <laughs> I want to talk about that in a minute, actually. <laughs> no one's in a hurry. I, um, so he's going to give some descriptions of how to live, and we're going to kind of park on a kind of a sober subject today, if I could. But... I put in your notes there a place if you want to just take notice. We're not going to turn to it. You can look it up if you want in your Bible that's in your pew. But um, Exodus chapter 20 is on page 37. Don't look there now. You have to read it later, okay? If you read it now, you won't be listening to me, and I'm fussy. <laughs> Anybody know what's in Exodus? Cha oh, where'd it go? There it is. What's there? Ten Commandments, right? How come it takes 17 verses to give you Ten Commandments? It should be ten verses, right? No, because several of them have some extensive explanations why ignoring this brings opposition and why following it brings blessing. There's little statements like that. It's kind of cool. So if you've never been through it, take a look. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, some, well, anyway, I'll stay on task. My ADD just tried to kick in. Okay. So that would give you an example of some of the basic ethics. Let's just take, let's not take the spiritual side of it. Let's just take the, um, the socially impacted commands. There are commands in the Ten Commandments that have an impact on our culture, on our social interaction. Really hard to run a business and be successful and have good customer base if you're a liar. So, you know, what's so complicated about that? And we wouldn't want that hung up in a school building, you know, say, like, why don't you tell the truth? Oh, no, no. That could be dangerous. You know, there's some teaching about not taking what doesn't belong to you. It's called stealing. When I was in Japan, one of the things I was so impressed with, this was, this was back in the 70s. In Japan, here's a non-gospel-saturated culture. If you had a package and you tied a string around it, you could leave it on the busiest intersection in Tokyo and nobody would touch it because the string meant it belongs to somebody. End of discussion. Is it yours? 
Leave it alone. Put it back. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't fornicate. These are all the things that are instructed in the Ten Commandments. It gives us an idea of what kind of mores God had in mind for the children of God. What makes us look different? And brethren, we have a great opportunity to look amazingly different because the whole culture has slid so severely. We shouldn't be... um, Well, I know that we are, including myself, so I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth. I have to remind myself, don't be so shocked that people are behaving certain ways because we've dropped all of those mores. In fact, we've said, we've said to ourselves and to our children, it's impossible for us to exercise self-control in any of these areas. can't be done. So if you believe that lie, then it won't be done. That's the way it works. But believers are called to march to the beat of a different drum, right? That just makes sense. High values, high convictions, but high convictions have to be worked on. They have to be developed. They have to be grown, if you will. So that brings me this morning to the downside of this portion of Scripture that we're in. I've got uh, several things I want to speak about, but as I was reading through the text, and I wanted to move toward all of this lofty thinking about living together in harmony and working and pulling together like-mindedly and all of these lofty things... I got stuck on the end of chapter 1. Have you noticed how long we've been in Philippians? It's a short book. Do you realize how much stuff is packed in every verse of Scripture? That's why it takes a while. That's why I'll be preaching this in about five years still. I'll be doing this here. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It won't be that long. But we are done with chapter 1 this week. Amen. Everybody said, thank you. Thank God, Pastor John. Okay. So here we go. The downside, the downside. This issue of how we behave is, can kind of introduce the downside about the gospel. Here we go, ready? 1 Peter chapter 4, anybody remember this one? By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, thief, or evildoer, or in case I missed anything, troublesome meddlers. We'll just throw that in, it's kind of a broad base, you know, you troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. So, basically, the ethics of the saints, the whole point was, we will, we'll be, sometimes we'll be persecuted for doing the right things. If you're persecuted or you get in trouble, or you have consequences come down on you for doing the wrong things, hey, buck up, you ask for it. You've heard me quote my old friend, uh, fellow preacher from Tucson, Arizona. He was a good old southern boy, A.B. Blair. That was his name. He's probably with the Lord now, but he used to love to say, you can't go sow your wild oats and then pray for crop failure. (laughs) So if you're sowing your wild oats on those first three or four things, you know, and the consequences come down, hey, deal with it. But if you're serving God and difficulty comes your way because of serving him, oh, he's actually going to tell us you're blessed. (gasps) Oh, get out. Yes. Now, that's where the challenge comes. I was doing all the right things. I was was eavesdropping on the uh, adult Sunday school class. By the way, uh, it was good stuff today, brother. 
Gene Bozick's teaching down there on a really great book, Philippians chapter 1, these very verses. <laughs> and we're talking about that, that, that issue of, you know, difficulty coming our way. And he happened to mention, you know, we try to serve the Lord and keep our, keep our nose clean, so to speak, and do the right thing. And then difficulty comes to him. And what's our reaction? What's our reaction? Come on, be honest. Yeah, exactly. God, you, what, are you th- what are you doing to me? Heaven's sake, did I just mess up? Or am I gone? Okay. I'm back? I'm back, okay. Okay, let's close in prayer. And... <laughs> Who was that? It's going to be on the screen next week, brother. Okay. <laughs> Ed McConnell. Okay, let's stay back on task here. But that's what we do, and we don't necessarily interpret it the way God had in mind and some of the blessing that he might be sending our way. So let's talk about even when we behave in an excellent fashion, even when we're as loving as we can be, sometimes to our non-believing neighbors, some of you will, that'll bring it very close to home because literally the neighbor may be the issue. No matter how excellent you try to behave, it still doesn't turn out like they're real happy with us. Does that make sense to anybody? That's the downside. Paul explains that we are at war. You know the verse toward the end, I think it's around 27, he says, um, the same conflict that you saw in me. What had happened? Let me just give you a little bit of background. Just to remind you, going back to Acts, the 16th chapter, which is the story of the planting of the Philippian church. And first, Lydia's heart was open, and a church started in her house. And as the church began to grow and Paul was preaching around, one day there was this young lady who was a fortune teller. She had a familiar spirit. That's a demon that was helping her do fortune-telling, and she's saying, this man's teaching the way of salvation, and Paul had enough one day and said, get out. It went out. They lost their little fortune-telling business. You know, they had to close Madame Blavatsky or whatever it was. They had to close it up. They lost all that money, and they said, oh, we'll fix your wagon, Paul. And so they had him beaten. They started a riot. He's beaten. He and Silas get thrown in jail. Isn't that a fun way to live for Jesus? Yeah, I can tell you're all real excited. And, and then after that, in jail, the earthquake, the doors fly open, the jailer becomes a Christian. It's a great story. It's a great story. But here he's saying, you were with me in the middle of that. You saw me in jail. You know what it was like. And now you see me in jail again. I'm in Rome this time, and I may lose my head this time. He didn't, we don't think. It came later. This thing that you've seen in me, this, this uh, conflict that was in me, the word conflict there is, I didn't, I'm not putting it on the screen, but agony, agony, can be reference, referencing a physical trial like the Olympics, or it can reference, anybody ever seen Gladiator? It can be referencing that, a gladiatorial fight. That's the kind of language Paul uses. I'm engaged in this gladiatorial combat. Yeah, those are, yeah. That's the agony. And you've been not only seeing me in it, but you've experienced some of it yourselves. Some of the opposition spilled out over onto these Christians in Philippi as well. 
So it's in the midst of that, the downside, that sometimes things are going to get difficult for Christians. Let any of you suffer not for bad doing, but for good doing. You can glorify God in the midst of that. So you have this expression in this opening text that was read to us today. In no way, verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. I don't want to spend too much time on those two categories. What it's basically saying is God does look down and say there's the good guys and the bad guys. Boy, it got quiet. (laughs) The good guys are his children. That doesn't mean they always act good. The bad guys are those who are not his children, who in this case are persecuting. Not all bad guys are acting badly. You have to have that clear in your head. But here's what he says. In no way alarmed. Another word for those who like Greek, peturomai. You know, usually the word for fear, don't be afraid of them. The word for fear is phobos, right? We get phobia from that. We use that expression, phobic. That's a normal word. You know what synonyms are, right? Like boat and ship. Those are synonyms, and yet they have a flavor that's different, right? They have a little bit of a flavor that's different. Same thing with these words. Phobia would be fear in general. We can even be phobos or phobia toward God, which is a healthy thing. We can be phobic about things that are irrational. That's an unhealthy thing. But this word about being afraid is a word implying intimidated. Hmm? Don't be alarmed. Don't be intimidated. Don't back off because you're afraid. You do know that courage is not the absence of fear. Do you all understand that? Courage is not the absence of fear. I'm speaking into something that is not a popular subject. The fact that I personally believe we are going to see exceedingly difficult times for the saints in the days ahead in America. Yes, in America. You heard me. America. Okay? I'm just saying it because... I wouldn't be a faithful steward, servant, to tell you everything's going to go just great forever. Uh, The economy, everything's going to turn around and get better, and we're never going to have to worry about it again. I don't think I'd be being honest. But regardless, not trying to prophesy and have you stone me if I'm proven wrong, because that's what would happen, right? False prophets get stoned to death. But I'm not afraid. No, I'm... (laughs) It's a serious subject, and it is a little bit heavy, but we do need to look at it because this text speaks into it specifically. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Let me park on that idea of not being intimidated for just a minute, something that might help illustrate. Anybody remember the story of Moses? You know the name. God calls Moses to deliver the children of Israel. But before he calls him specifically, Moses gets an inkling that there's something wrong with the way the children of Israel are being abused and he's living in the palace. And he chooses to identify with his people. And one day he sees an Egyptian slave master beating a Hebrew slave, remember? And he looks around and goes... I know enough karate to take this guy out, so he does. And he kills him. 
But this was before his formal call, and this is him relying on himself instead of God, etc. Fill in all the blanks. What does it say happened next? Anybody know? Yes. It says specifically he realized, uh-oh, somebody said something. Remember, he's talking the next day to the Jewish guys that are fighting. They were having a scrap. And he says, why are you fighting with each other? The enemies, the, these Egyptians... Hey, what are, you, what are you interfering for? What, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. All points bulletin, it's out. And Moses says, I'm out of here. He was scared. He was fearful for his life. But if you go to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, which, by the way, is not inconsistent and full of contradiction, as people would like you to believe, it says... Moses left Egypt not fearing the king because he was looking for a better citizenship, a better future. What does that mean? How do you put it back together? How do you put those together? First, he's afraid. Then it says he's not afraid. He was not intimidated. He was scared and ran for his life, but he refused to let that fear keep him from doing the will of God. Later, remember what was his struggle? Go back to Pharaoh. I can't go back to Pharaoh. Yes, you can. Okay. Eventually, he gives in, right? And he comes up with all these excuses. But what did he do? He won over his fear. He refused to let the intimidation hold him back from obedience. Does that make sense? That's what it's talking about. Think about the culture in which we live. The possibilities of opposition coming right now on Christians. I thought about a bunch of them. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've had some personal experience. Not a lot, but I've had some. The sin nature just rises up and hates those who convict them. So a young lady says, I'm standing for Jesus. I'm choosing to keep myself pure. And some guy makes sure we're going to bag her. We're going to make sure we ruin that self-righteous goody two-shoes' life. You get what I'm saying? It happens. It happens. You're at work. Everybody knows you're, op- you're honest. You won't deal. You won't maneuver. You won't play the games that are necessary. And because of that, they overlook you for promotion. Or maybe you go out the back door. You marry into a family where your faith is vibrant. Your spouse joins you in that, vi- in that vibrant faith and it irritates the religious flesh of her family or his family. And boy, does it hit the fan. It happens. And that's without formal legal action against us, which is also coming. Example. On the one hand, we're admired if we're holding our standard high and we're living above average. On the other hand, it provokes the sin nature to hate. I read probably a year and a half ago, there was an article that came out about an intervarsity group. You know who intervarsity is? It's a, it's a, um, they start clubs on college campuses. They've been well-respected for years and years and years. They win kids to faith on campus, whatever. This InterVarsity club at a particular university had really embraced the idea of let's not provoke the culture wars. Let's not, you know, wave red flags in front of the bull. Let's kind of 
keep it low-key and be as loving as we can. And they worked really hard not to hit hot-button issues, which there are plenty of. They stayed away from all that. They walked honorably, honestly, lovingly. Everybody on campus noticed just how warm and gracious they were. And they had their charter yanked anyway. And they went to the powers that be. How come this happened? It's very simple. Do you say that Jesus is the only way to get right with God? No way. We're not having that. The, the learning community of open-mindedness that we were supposed to have, you're not teaching that on our campus. Thank you so much. Look, it's time to wake up and smell the coffee. That's just the way it is. And I think about this often because of some of my roots. If I have to instruct a person who is struggling with gender, and I know what the scripture says, not only what the scripture says, what I know to be real, actual reality in the way we're made, I'm going to tell the truth, even though the governor of this state says I'm being a hateful therapist at that point. It's only a matter of time. I asked the MLT last week. That's our governing board. Are you okay with the fact that your pastor may end up in jail one of these days? Are you okay with that? (laughs) Well, you're so encouraging. I just feel, feel the love, you know. No, I hope you will. See, I'm not making this stuff up. It's a matter of time, not not if, it's, it's when. So it does become something we have to steal our inner man for. The good news about opposition from outside when we're under attack, by the way, I want to just read one quick bullet from one of my favorite old books called True Discipleship by William MacDonald. One of the things disciples do is, listen, a deliberate choosing of the cross. I choose to embrace the cross. Um, Some of the language of that would come out of, uh, like, um, Jim Elliott when he went to reach the Alka Indians. And some of his language in his diary was, I don't want to do this, but I open my hands to the nail of Calvary. In other words, not my will, but your will. I'm choosing to obey. In his case, it cost him his life. In his wife's case, it cost her, her husband, and the father of her children. But she was one who also opened her hand to the nail of Calvary, who embraced the cross, went back to that land, and led those murderers to faith and developed a thriving church. Now, that's what it should look like, Mike, right? People see that. It was in Life magazine. Anybody old enough to remember that? I still have the magazine. Life magazine, major reporting and photographs. Impacted the world because of these women's resolution to do the will of God. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, Jesus said. The cross is not some physical infirmity or mental anguish. These things are common to all men. We get this mixed up sometimes, friends. The cross is a pathway that is deliberately chosen. It's a path which, so far as this world goes, is one of dishonor and reproach at times. The cross symbolizes the shame, persecution, and abuse which the world heaped upon the Son of God and which the world will heap upon all who choose to stand against the tide. Now, we shouldn't be obnoxious about it. I I saw a guy 
God bless him, or as they say in the South, bless his little heart. <laughs> At a school board meeting, like, I don't have to do that. I, I, I won't let my, I, I'll never tolerate that kind of defilement. I'm like, oh, please. Not to be self-righteous, but to stand for righteousness. There's a difference. Any believer can avoid the cross simply by being conformed to the world and its ways. Just go with the flow. Now, there's a good side to having opposition. When you know who an outside enemy is, it binds us together. I'm a lot less likely to pick on my brother's and sisters in my fellowship, even if they've got some weaknesses, if I know we're standing against the enemy, we're under attack from without. Anybody see that uh, series, uh, and I'm not recommending, but Band of Brothers, that recount of, of the team that went behind enemy lines during World War II? They tell the whole story from beginning to end, but at the end, what happened? They, we won the war. And all these soldiers are over in Europe in a battle zone that's now at peace. And what happens? They start drinking and fighting with each other because the enemy has been taken out of the way. When you have an enemy, you're a band of brothers and you'll die for each other. But when the enemy was taken out of the way, now we start preying on each other. Do you think that might be what's happened to the American church? Uh, duh, that's a duh. That, you don't even have to answer that one. A common enemy binds us together. So there is a positive side of opposition. But there's something else. There's this strange teaching from Jesus that this can actually bring an inverted sense of joy. Anybody remember this? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. You know, some translations say happy. Happy are you. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute and say all manner of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. You know, there's some big-name guys that went ahead of you and experienced the same thing. That's what he's saying. First time it happened. Anybody remember? I was sharing with my friend who, all my friends in New York City were Jewish, and I... He made a profession. I gave him a Bible. We're talking, praying together, and things like that. And one day I get this rip-snorting phone call, and it was his father. He was not a happy camper. He told me what he did to the Bible. He probably wanted to tell me what he wanted to do to me next. Went down the incinerator. We had incinerators in the apartment buildings there. Went down the incinerator. He probably wanted me to go down the incinerator. And I don't know, I was a young brat at the time, you know, new, new Christian, didn't know anything. Some, somehow grace came on me and I said, well, sir, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to offend you, but I think some of what I'm sharing with your son could help you too. <laughs> yeah, click. Anyway, I'm not sure I did it all perfectly, but let me tell you what happened. As soon as I hung up, about, it took about 45 seconds and I went, woohoo! I just got opposition for the gospel. I, it was, and you know, it's happened a couple other times. And I'm not sure anymore I'd like it as much, but I actually responded with joy. It was like, 
I did get that right. I got it right. I might have made a couple of mistakes in the process, but I got it right. Because he was angry at the gospel, not me. He was angry at it. It was okay. So there's an inverted kind of joy that comes out of it. So that means there is, an op- there is, a, there is a positive side to this. So I'm, I'm sharing this kind of heavy reality that sometimes you're going to get, you know, unfriended on Facebook. Or something really bad will happen, like they'll, put a, they'll key your car just to show you, you know. I don't know. But there is a positive side, because when we look at that, we think, man, are we ready for that? Can I encourage you that there's grace available for whatever we have to be ready for, whatever it is? So let me give you the upside. So then, my beloved, this is Philippians 2, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Isn't that a great verse? Work out your salvation. Here's the point. This is the positive side. You're in process. You have to work it out. You don't have to get it all together today. Aren't you glad? Because I don't have it all together today. Do you? Because I know I've wondered about this. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I have. Once in a while, not that you want to, you don't want to park in morbidity or, you know, the negative side of what's involved in the gospel, but... Sometimes when we read things like Jim Elliott's memoirs or Richard Wormbrand, Tortured for Christ, if anybody knows that, The Voice of the Martyrs, there's something about that that challenges our soul. It does. It can feed our inner man, can strengthen us, makes me pray into it and say, am I walking with you the way I ought to be? What will happen when it's my turn? How will I do? See, it's a process. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You don't have to get it all at once. You don't have to sweat it. But it is appropriate to press into those things in terms of our spiritual life. I've got it on a more simple level from my perspective. I'm looking at us as a church. We need to move ahead, and we have verses coming up like this. We're going to park on these for weeks. Make me truly happy, the New Living Translation says, by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one heart and one purpose. Even that's tough. Know what I'm saying? Making that happen is tough. In fact, when Paul says, I want to hear about you, that you are striving together for the faith of the gospel, here's the word that's used, striving. You see anything familiar in that second Greek language there? Soon is together, together, athlete, sweating together, doing reps. You're in the gym, you're sweating together. Dude, yeah, we're doing this one, baby. We got it. Listen, if we're going to live together and really pull together in unity of mind and love each other and not dishonor the Lord in the process, you guys are going to work and sweat. And we will offer towels at the door on the way out. So (laughs) it's work. None of us have arrived. To move toward truly loving my brothers and sisters, I have to work at that. Have you noticed it? I have to, it's work. I have to dismantle some of my thought processes and change them. It's work. I'm going to work up a sweat. 
Word of encouragement. We're going to try to start doing that actively. I think some of us, have, we've been making some progress. There's some good stuff happening. We're not out of the woods yet, just being honest. But I'm excited to see what will happen. We've not arrived, but we can move forward. We'll never arrive this side of glory. And we can continue to together, sweat together, and work out our salvation together. One guy I knew wrote a book called Holy Sweat. I think we ought to. <laughs> we may want to claim that, right? <laughs> We're going to have some holy sweat around here. All of God's people said, Amen. Okay. We need to develop our convictions. By the way, I forgot to tell a story. There's a brother here that writes me a little encouragement every week. And when we were talking about not being intimidated, we know we want to go to heaven, right? Last week I admitted as a pastor, I don't want to go today. I know some people left and said, can't listen to that man preach ever again. What a weakling. He's spiritually sick. I mean... If he was spiritual, he'd want to go today. So a Sunday school teacher says to his class, how many of you want to go to heaven? And all raise their hands except Billy. The Sunday school teacher says, Billy, you don't want to go to heaven? Billy said, later, but not today. (laughs) How a kid would get that, right? You know, the implication is like, I hate this life. I can't wait to go to heaven. Really? Really? I love my life in Christ. I do. I enjoy it. But if I have to go today, I'm ready. I'm ready. That's what he has in mind. We need to develop convictions that deepen so that even if I am opposed for the gospel, I can learn how to rejoice instead of whine. Easier said than done. We all will make mistakes, but that's okay because you can work at it. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I'm going to ask us to stand. We're going to close in prayer. And um, I just want to quote a passage out of a song that we sing occasionally for all the saints. Oh, may thy soldiers faithful, true, and bold. You know that song? Fight as the saints who nobly fought of old. And win with them the victor's crown of gold. Hallelujah. We don't fight like the world fights, but we do have to fight. And we can win with them the victor's crown of gold. Hallelujah. Praise to Yahweh, the God who made us. Let's pray. God, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for their patience in having to endure, I guess I would say, instruction about something that could be very, very unhappy and very disheartening and yet can also be strengthening to us personally, to a church corporately, to the kingdom work globally, just as we know in other places around the world where saints have their lives on the line, your glory is manifested and churches are multiplying And we acknowledge even historically that the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. And we're not in a hurry for that. We're still praying the right way. We're asking for mercy and we will continue to ask for mercy. But I'm asking that you would give us that non-intimidated spirit. Come what may, I'm standing for you, Jesus. And I'm asking for help. 
And I'm asking for help for all my brothers and sisters here that your glory and grace might rest on us because that's the promise in the New Testament. That when we endure such things, your favor rests on us. Bring it. Help us. Get glory to yourself. Make a name for yourself in this assembly. Be with the saints this week, those who suffer, those who are traveling across uh, national lines, international lines. Protect us, guide us, and empower us and fill us with your joy. In Jesus' name we ask it and all of God's people said, Amen. amen and amen. God bless you and have a great and wonderful day. It's beautiful out.